So this fall we are exploring the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament and um, has a lot to say to us about relationships, it has a lot to say to us about uh, the kind of community in which we all want to be known, uh, has a lot to say to us about things that destroy that kind of community. Um, outrage is one of those. This is a quote from Walter Isaacson. He is um, uh, getting ready to put out a, a biography of Elon Musk and uh, an interview with him about uh, what it's like to write about a kind of complex and controversial figure in public life these days. And this is what he had to say. He says it's kind of a hard task because this day and age, everybody wants to make a snap judgment. People are heroes or villains. Readers want you to be outraged, one side or the other. That word outrage captures the spirit of the age in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Kind of a, a culture of polarization. Us versus them, all or nothing, black, white, no in-between, hero or villain, how can we as followers of Jesus begin to push back against that? Not in ways that feed the polarization, but it actually injects something different into its midst. One way we can do that, shown to us in Scripture, is a combination of intimacy with God and curiosity about the world God has made. And uh, we'll see that model in the book of Proverbs this morning but also in the teaching of Jesus. So Peter's going to come and read for us a few samplings from Proverbs that will help us to hear that combination. And I'm going to see with God curiosity about his good world. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, Our Scripture reading this morning is an assortment of readings from Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 12 and 11, Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 21, and then Proverbs 24, 30 through 32. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply them and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. Mm. Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you to know what is right and true? that you may give a true answer to those who sent you. I passed by the field of a slugger, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and this stone was broken down, and this stone was by the man was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. When you go to a birthday party, 
who gets the cake? Right? There's, there's only one name written on the cake. But everybody at the party gets to eat the cake. Now, at the end of the party, uh, most of the guests go home. I, I think, think of being 10 years old. Right? Party's over. Moms and dads show up, pick up kids and take them home. Some of the kids stay. Right? You, you if your parents were hosting the party, you stay. <laughs> One name on the cake. Some kids stay home because they're part of that family. But everybody gets to enjoy the party. Everybody gets to eat cake. Jesus asked a similar question in Matthew chapter 5. When it rains, whose land gets watered? He said this. He's, he's teaching us what it's like to be sons of our Father in heaven who know how to love our enemies. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God doesn't just give cake to his kids, and all the other guests at the party stand around looking, wishing they could have some too. Right? Everybody gets to come to the party. There's one son's name written on the cake, Jesus. And because of his great love for his son, Jesus, he invites everybody to the party. <laughs> and everybody gets to enjoy a good time. Everybody gets to eat the cake. Everybody gets the beauty of the sunshine. Everybody gets to benefit from the rainfall, the just and the unjust alike. Those are who are in right relationship to God and those who aren't. He sends his blessings on his whole world. Wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Jesus is talking about here, the kind of wisdom that is taught to us in the book of Proverbs, calls us to combine common grace curiosity with saving grace intimacy. And what I want to do this morning is to define those terms, common grace and saving grace. What are we talking about? And take a minute to say why it matters in a polarized culture, and then to go a little deeper in each one of those categories, unpack a bit what this curiosity and intimacy look like when they're held in combination. So let's start with these two kinds of grace, common grace and saving grace. Common grace is the fact that everybody gets to eat cake at the party. Common grace is God's goodness for this life made available to every human being through shared experience. When the sun comes up, we share experience, right? When the rain falls down, it's a shared experience, Jesus tells us. When you go to the party, it's a shared experience. Everyone there gets benefits of living in God's good world, God's goodness for life in this world made available to every human being. Jesus says, the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. God loves indiscriminately certain of his blessings. We call those common grace blessings. Common, not because they're um, so ordinary that we don't take them seriously, but common because we hold them in common. Anybody can share in them. Saving grace, sometimes called special grace or redeeming grace in some traditions, we're going to call it saving grace today, is God's goodness for this life and the next. 
God's goodness for this world and the world that is to come when Christ returns and all things are restored. God's goodness for this life and the next made available to every human being, not now through shared experience, but through faith. It's made available to any human being who will put their trust in God because of what his son has done. Saving grace is that grace. Saving grace is Jesus saying, I want to write your name on my birthday cake too. So that you don't just get to have a slice of it and then go home. But the whole party is for you just as much as it is for me. I want you to feast with me and my father and my family forever so that you don't have to go home. This is your home. That's saving grace. Everybody gets invited to the party. Everybody gets to enjoy certain blessings in this life. That's common grace. Saving grace is through faith in Jesus. You get to have every blessing forever. Those are the two kinds of grace we want to talk about today. And we want to say, what goes wrong if we don't get this combination right? If we, if we take these two kinds of grace and hold them separately, what goes wrong? Polarization is a great description of what goes wrong. There are two kinds of fear that begin to happen. One fear in a polarized culture is that if we don't draw every boundary clearly, People will assume we're on the wrong side. I've got to draw every boundary up front the moment you meet me. I mean, you've seen the people wearing them, right? I went to watch some trains the other week. I love trains. And and this guy walks up with his shirt on and is drawing all the boundaries. It, 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 It says, I'm white, male, Christian. How else can I offend you? I got to dry all the boundaries right now or you will assume I'm on the wrong side of some boundary. It's living in fear. It's, it's what I will call a culture war posture. It leaves no room for common grace. The culture war posture says, I'm so afraid of the people on the other side of the boundary that I got to draw all the boundaries now and I want to destroy the enemy who's on the wrong side of the boundary. How can I share cake with my enemy? If I'm good and they're evil, if I'm just and they're unjust, how could I want what's good for them? Culture war posture is very different from a common grace posture. Right? Jesus says, my father is quite happy to share his sunshine even with people who are on the wrong side of the good evil boundary. God doesn't put up a big blinking sign every morning and it says, hey, I just want you to know some of you are on the wrong side of that boundary, but I'm going to let you see the sunlight today anyway. Right? Culture war posture has this fear that says we've got to make all the boundaries clear right now so people won't think we're on the wrong side. It leaves no room for common grace, no room for saying, you know, a lot of us have a shared experience of life in this world. A lot of us are learning some of the same lessons. We aren't all enemies. Here's another kind of fear. I'll call it secularizing humanism. Not just secular humanism, but secularizing. Why that strange way of saying it? It'll become clear in a minute. 
the fear here is that it's wrong to draw any boundaries about anything. So there's no room for saving grace in this outlook, right? It says all moral and spiritual beliefs are essentially the same. So commitment to one religious or spiritual tradition is optional. If they're all the same, it doesn't really matter which one you're committed to. And in fact, commitment to one tradition and one God may actually be harmful. So any expression of commitment to that religion, to that God, any, any expression, for instance, in Christianity of commitment to the Bible, to prayer, to worship, to obedience is optional. It'll all work out in the end. It's all basically the same. Commitment's optional. So expressing the commitment's optional. And in fact, it may be harmful. There's no room for saving grace in this outlook. I call it secularizing humanism because the pressure is destroy the beliefs that create boundaries. Specific moral and spiritual commitments create boundaries. The boundaries divide us. So the way to heal us is to destroy the beliefs that create the boundaries. Take the name of the kid off the cake or every other kid will feel left out secularizing humanism. It leaves no room for saving grace. Our goal, though, is to follow Jesus and the wisdom of Scripture that says, actually, what's healthy is to combine the two, to combine a common grace curiosity with saving grace intimacy. Let's unpack saving grace intimacy for a moment. Peter read for us from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. Do you hear the saving grace intimacy of being a beloved child of the Lord God who created the whole universe? A son or daughter in whom this God delights. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Don't grow weary of his correction, reproof. For the Lord reproves the one he loves. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't correct you. If he didn't care about you, he wouldn't instruct you. The Lord reproves him he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. There is a kind of intimate, close relationship with God as our father. That means he delights in us. He loves us. Do you hear the intimacy there? The book of Proverbs says that kind of intimate relationship with God is not available to the fool. The fool has said, I am wise in my own eyes. I don't need God. I don't need anyone. I can't be intimate with someone I don't need. I have no interest in listening to him. So everyone's invited to the party, but some people say, I don't want to come. There is a saving grace intimacy. There is an invitation. The whole book of Proverbs pleads with us to come to the Lord, to come to this father, to be loved by him, to accept his wisdom, to listen as he instructs us teaches us, even when he disciplines us. It doesn't mean he's angry with us. His discipline means he loves us. The Lord 
disciplines those he loves. As a father disciplines the son or the daughter in whom he delights. When you come to God in faith, you become his beloved child. He delights in you. And his plan is to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus. These two verses from Proverbs 3 are quoted again in the book of Hebrews. They're quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, word for word. And they're saying to New Testament Christians, they're saying, Jesus is the son whom God loved and delighted in. And his son learned through difficulty and hardship. That was the father's discipline, not because Jesus did anything wrong and needed to be corrected. But he was learning how to obey his father's will in a hard world where Roman crosses and death ruled. He delights in his children. He will teach us even through the hardest things in this universe, which are drawing us closer and closer to the Son, Jesus, who has endured more hardship than anyone ever will. Saving grace intimacy lets us look at the hardest things in the world and say, my Father loves me. He delights in me because he delights in his Son, Jesus Christ. So a word of application for us. Check your inner warrior, that inner culture warrior that says, you know what, we're Christians. We are committed to faith in Jesus because we want to win a culture war. We, We read and study the Bible. We treasure it because we want to win the battle for the soul of our culture. We pray because we're going to win the war. We worship and we obey because we're winning a culture war. No. Scripture doesn't say that at all. It says we are committed to faith in Jesus because we want to know our Father deeply. We are committed to the Bible because we want to walk closely with the Father who delights in us. We pray because we want to know our Father intimately, not because we're warriors trying to win a battle for the culture, because we're fighting this battle to stay close to our God who loves us deeply. Another word of application, can we erase the um, us-them arrogance? There's no room in the Christian community for seeing ourselves as people who have it all right, who've got it all figured out. We deserve to win a culture war because we've got it right and everybody else has it wrong. There's no room for that kind of arrogance. If we are the Father's children by the grace of Jesus, then we need discipline. We need instruction. We need correction. Listen to what he says to us in his word. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't grow weary of his reproof because the Lord reproves those he loves. If he loves us, then we need to grow. We need to be taught. We need instruction. We need correction. These are proofs that he cares about us, loves us, delights in us. He will love anybody who puts his faith or her faith in Jesus. There will never be a time 
that we can look down on the them who don't have it all right. There is no us-them divide here. Every human being needs instruction, correction, growth. So let's set aside that us-them arrogance. That's one of the fruits of this saving grace intimacy. All right, let's explore common grace curiosity a little more deeply. I want to quote one of my friends, Brian Auker. He and I went to seminary together and uh, then wound up studying in Scotland at the same time, visited one another there a few times, and, uh, and, and then wound up teaching together at Covenant Seminary for a while. One of Brian's favorite sayings, one that I love and you will hear occasionally from me, is every day is a school day. Every day is a school day. Now, if, if you hated school, that sounds pretty depressing. <laughs> if you're currently in school and hating it, then like every day is a school day. is like, no, what about Saturday? <laughs> what about Sunday? Those aren't school days. Can we please have them? What, what, what Brian means by saying every day is a school day is there's always something to learn. I'm always curious. I want to know. Even if I don't understand it, help me understand it. Every day is a school day. I'm always interested in learning something new. Proverbs shows us how to be curious to learn through observation. Common grace curiosity means we're going to look at God's world and say, I want to learn something from this. Proverbs 24, Peter read it for us earlier. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man who lacked sense. And behold, now that word behold is an old English word for look. Right? Be curious. Look at stuff. When you're walking past stuff, look at it. Look. It was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with prickly, pokey bushes, nettles. And the stone wall was breaking, broken down. And then I put on my uh, culture warrior hat and I said, See, that's what happens to you when you get lazy. You deserved it, but I'm not like that. No. No. The posture here is one of going, my father is instructing me. My father wants me to learn something from the world I'm looking at. And there's a lesson here for me, right? Then I saw and considered it. Now, every day is a school day, and some of us go to school and learn Hebrew, and we read the Hebrew text, and you see that the word I is emphatic in this verse. Look, I saw what was around me, and I learned something about me. I learned something for me. I saw and I considered it. I I took time to ponder, what am I learning from what I'm looking at? Common grace curiosity is I'm always looking at the world around me and going, there's something here for me to learn. And in this case, the thing for me to learn is, well, I looked and I received instruction. And the verse goes on to say, yeah, that, that if you fold your hands and sleep all day, poverty will come on you like a bandit. The sense isn't that guy over there deserved it. The sense is 
this could happen to me too. I, I could be the one stumbling into this form of foolishness. I need to learn. I need to receive instruction. Or this thing I'm seeing in the world could happen to me. And maybe sleeping too much and folding my hands and not working hard enough is not my form of foolishness. Some other form of foolishness could happen to me. And if I get sleepy and guarding my heart against that form of folly, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's being a workaholic. That's my form of foolishness. I can't get sleepy on that one. Common grace curiosity makes us lean into the world, constantly looking to see what it's teaching us. And it isn't just Christians who can learn from that. All human beings can learn from this. Right? That's, there are plenty of examples like this in the book of Proverbs. Go to the ant. Look at those little bugs. What's God teaching you through those bugs? Well, if you don't believe in God, God's not teaching you anything through the bugs. But wait a minute. He is. That's common grace wisdom. God is teaching everybody. Every day is a school day for everybody because of common grace. He doesn't just teach his children. Everybody at the party gets to eat the cake. Um, what does this mean for us? It, in terms of application, it means we all have points of contact with every person we will ever meet, no matter what they believe. A cultural warrior posture tends to divide the world up into enemies and us. Common grace wisdom means, wait a minute, every person I ever meet, no matter what they believe, I share something in common with them. We are living in the same world. We are observing the same world. If we walk past that field, we will see broken down walls and we will see nettles and thorns and thistles. And we can have a conversation about what, what do you learn from that when you see it? We are struggling with common problems and temptations. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. You have something in common with every person you will ever meet, even if they think you are their enemy. We can lean into this polarized world in a very different way than outrage and a warrior posture. All right, let's go a little bit deeper here. This is a picture. What? Every day is a school day. Come on. Aminimope. I don't need a tissue. I'm not sneezing. Aminimope. That's the name of this document. It's the Aminimope Instruction. Um, this copy of it is only about 2,000 years old, but the document itself originates uh, from about 1,300 years before the time of Jesus. It's an Egyptian collection of Proverbs written by a court official who is in charge of grain distribution. Um, Amen Mope is his name. Uh, when we read Proverbs chapter 22, 
And it says, incline your ear, hear the words of the wise, apply your heart to my knowledge. It's not word for word, but it sounds almost identical to the beginning of this ancient Egyptian collection of wisdom. And, and then it says, verse 20, have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge? This document, written in Egypt 300 years before King Solomon reigned in Israel, refers to 30 sayings, and it includes 30 sayings. The idea of collecting 30 sayings of wisdom didn't originate in Israel. It may not have originated in Egypt. It's common grace, right? The the idea that older would instruct younger, the idea that a father would instruct his son is common grace wisdom in the human race. We aren't just curious to learn through observing the world. We're curious to learn through wisdom that's shared among human beings. In fact, God puts in his Bible forms of wisdom that originated outside his Bible. Is that okay? Not if you don't have space in your world for common grace. If your Jesus says God causes the sun to shine only on saved people and unsaved people don't know anything about anything, then you don't have space for this kind of God. But God has space for this kind of God, right? What's he teaching us? Well, he's teaching us something interesting. Because while the form of wisdom... The idea of collecting proverbial sayings to pass down to the next generations is shared in common with lots of human cultures. And while even the distinct form of putting 30 wisdom sayings together in a collection is something that the Bible shares with this ancient Egyptian document, there is something distinctive here when you read Proverbs chapter 24, uh, 22, verse 19 It says, I have written these 30 sayings to you for a very specific reason. Verse 19 of Proverbs 22. So that your trust, your faith may be in the Lord. That is why I've made these things known to you. Do you hear the combination there of common grace curiosity? Hey, if this kind of proverbial wisdom among generations works, let's use that within Israel too. If this 30 sayings format speaks to our young people, let's use it in Israel too. Common grace. But used for the purpose of saving grace intimacy. So that your trust may be in the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord over all things. There's this clear boundary Trust this God and no other, Proverbs says. And yet that clear boundary is held together with this kind of common grace curiosity that says it is okay to read Egyptian literature. It is okay to learn spiritual lessons from people who don't worship Yahweh. Make sure as you do that, you don't cross this boundary of intimacy with any other God than him. But there is a way to hold together that intimacy of fellowship with that God 
and this kind of curiosity about the world around you. That's the invitation that we receive from God in the Old Testament, from Jesus, His Son, in the New. And I'm going to ask you a question. Which grace are you neglecting? Is fear causing you to put up boundaries that are eroding your curiosity? Are you afraid to learn from people who don't share your faith in Jesus because you see them as the enemy? Is fear that you might be on the losing side of a culture war causing you to lose your curiosity about learning from God's good world? Or maybe you're struggling with the other fear. Maybe fear of being perceived as a culture warrior is causing you to erase boundaries that protect your intimacy with your father. Which grace are you neglecting? Or are you like me and like in a given day I've done both? I just don't need any grace. I don't want to learn anything. Grace moves us from fear to delight. When we receive God's kindness and mercy to us through Jesus, the controlling uh, orientation of life is not fear anymore. It becomes delight. And we become like children of the Father who say, you know how kids are. No more tickling, please. That's enough. I'm finished with bedtime stories now. Please don't read another. Kids aren't like that, are they? Fling them up in the air, and what do they say? Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Daddy's tired. Daddy's arms are about to fall off of his body. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. It's it's literally the same thing we've done a hundred times. Nothing is different or new about it. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Another story. Read another one. Again, more, more, again. That's what it's like to be the child of God living in his good world. G.K. Chesterton even imagines maybe Jesus sitting in heaven going, Daddy, that sunset was amazing. Can you do it again tomorrow night? And the father says, yeah, I'll do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Not controlled by fear. Governed by delight. Because the Father has shown us His grace through His beloved Son, Jesus. Let's take a minute and pray together. Lord, call us to repentance, instruct us, correct us. Some of us have retreated into a holy huddle and we believe that if we ever look at any art produced by someone who isn't a Christian, our soul will be infected forever. If we ever learn anything from a teacher who doesn't share our Christian faith, we have to put so many asterisks beside it that we can't delight in it 
anymore. We need to grow in this common grace curiosity. And some of us have so emphasized that kind of learning that we have, we have stopped thinking that faith in you is necessary. We have stopped learning from your Bible. We have stopped praying. Renew our intimacy with you, Lord, if that is our fear. Bring us to true wisdom, we pray, in the name of Jesus, the only one who ever got this balance right. Help us to learn from him, and through him we pray in his name. Amen.